0: So it may seem weird that we are kicking off um, Acts in the middle of a holiday season, but, um, but it is honestly very fi- fitting because the, the book of Acts is the culmination and continuation of what God did, as we just sang about, that Christ is born, we celebrate Christ's birth, and uh, we jump into Acts seeing the, the culmination of that gift and that offering So um, the book of Acts, um, our passage this morning, verses 1 through 5, is the prologue. And I remember as a kid, when I first started reading books, not picture books, not comic books, but real adult books, uh, as I called them in my mind as a kid, I would always skip over the prologue. Because I wanted to get to the good stuff. I, I've got this book because I wanted to read the story, so let's skip over the prologue and jump into the good stuff. I remember one time, after doing that a lot, I was reading one story, and it was probably a quarter of the way in they referenced something, and I had no idea what they were referencing, but it was referenced in such a way that I'm supposed to know what's going on. So I skimmed back through everything else and couldn't find it. So then I flipped to the prologue. And oh, there it was. So these, this 10-page prologue that I skipped over, I got to go back and read that. And ever since that point, I always read the prologue now. So <clears throat> Acts this morning is a prologue of what we're going to be studying, uh, verses 1 through 5. And it can be so easy to read this really quickly and move on to the good stuff because it's short and sweet. Our prologues today are often pages and pages long in modern novels. And here, it's really short. And you can read it, and you can say, okay, I got it, I know it, and we can move on. But there is so much good stuff here that we would miss if we skipped the prologue. So this morning, I invite you to stand as we read God's Word, if you are able to. And we are going to dive in to Luke's writing and see and just meditate and dwell on the prologue of Acts. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we humbly ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would fill this place with your presence, that you would give us a deeper passion to know you more, to love you more, to serve you more, and to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ is indeed born. God, speak through me this morning. May Aaron Mills be quiet, and may your words speak for all to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So as we start reading this prologue, there are two things that stand out right away. First, Acts is the second book that Luke wrote. And second, he wrote this book to a guy named Theophilus. And so this being the second book, the first book being the Gospel of Luke, which bears Luke's name. And Both of these books go hand in hand. They are meant to be together. Acts is volume two and Luke is volume one. And in fact, the introduction to the gospel of Luke is very, very similar to what we have here in the introduction to Acts. And there's a part of me that wants to say the gospel of Acts. uh, But, um, so most people call it the Acts of the Apostles. Um, So if, the Gospel of Acts slips out. For, forgive me for saying that. Um, but I would like for us, if you are able, to turn back to the Gospel of Luke and Luke chapter one, and I have it up on the screen as well. We read in the first four verses that Luke starts off his gospel by saying Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those Who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the introduction to Luke, and we can see, is written to this guy named Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus. In fact, the only thing that we know about him is that he was a prominent person because in his introduction to the Gospel of Luke, Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. So he wasn't a commoner because that is a title that you would give to somebody who's very important. What level of importance? We don't know. Was he some sort of Roman official? Was he a very wealthy citizen? Some have argued that he was Luke's patron, and he has been paying Luke and providing money for him to go on all of these journeys. That we don't know, and that isn't really important. What is important is that Luke wrote not one, but two books to Theophilus, and the first book is the story of Jesus in his earthly ministry here. And we read the reason why Luke wrote that, and we can see this in verse 3 of Luke chapter 1, that he wrote this to write an orderly account for Theophilus, that he may have certainty concerning the things that were taught to him. So we know that the gospel has been preached to Theophilus. Many people believe that he was probably a believer in Jesus Christ, and Luke didn't just simply write these things. He wrote an orderly account and he spent time interviewing people. And we know that he interviewed people because Luke's gospel is the only one that has such a detailed account from Mary's perspective at the birth of Jesus and these things. So Luke was very um, meticulous in how he went about interviewing. He traveled to different places and he spent time writing this down so that he could give a detailed and orderly account to Theophilus so that Theophilus could be certain about the things that were taught. So the record that we have in Luke and the record that we have in Acts, we know are detailed and we know that they are accurate. R.C. Sproul in his commentary on Acts um, mentions that many scholars throughout history have taken to the Bible And tried to debunk it and prove that it's false and these things never happened. And Luke in particular, because it is one of the most detailed of the Gospels, many have tried to show that it isn't true. But there was one scholar who did not like Christianity at all, set out to show that the Gospel of Luke was false. And in his study and in his researching came to faith in Jesus Christ because it is so very accurate the names that Luke drops in the gospel of Luke and in Acts, the locations that he writes about are so accurate that and because they are so obscure that it would take somebody who was actually there to know this name of this person, this governor, this ruler, this town, what it looked like, how things were, the events that happened. It had to come from somebody who was there. And so in his trying to show that the gospel of Luke was false, he realized it's true. And if it's true, Christ must be true too. So he gave his life to Christ. And so one thing that we can read just by starting out in Acts, seeing that it is the second book of a two-volume set, when we come back here to the first volume and we see the painstaking detail um, that Luke took to write both Luke and Acts. We know that it is trustworthy. We know that it is accurate. And we know that as we read through these, these things actually happened. So as you study Luke, and as for the next several months, however long it's gonna take us to get through the book of Acts, that we know that these things actually happened. Now, the second thing that we want to point out is that both of these books go hand in hand. And for the longest time, they were read together. It wasn't until the church started forming and they started forming all of the writings of the New Testament into one unit that they put all the gospels together and then separated Luke and Acts apart. But both Luke and Acts are intended to be read together. And as we see in Acts chapter one, Luke says, I have dealt, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what we see here, and it's, it's subtle, it's implied, he doesn't explicitly say it, but book one is what Jesus began to do and teach. Book two is what Jesus continued to do and teach. It might be easy to read Luke and say, this is the account of Jesus and then Acts, this is the account of the apostles. But really, it's the account of Christ and what Christ was doing, both when he was physically here and when he, was, when, when he was ascended back into heaven. So Acts is an account of Christ continuing to work. Now, we will read that he continues to work through the Holy Spirit, through his apostles, but it is still Christ's work that we're going to be reading about. So those are, the, those are the big things that as we read Acts and as we study Acts and as we look at Acts, this is the work of Jesus Christ that he started when he was here and it is continuing on through the book of Acts and it is continuing on today. Just because Acts ends in chapter 28 doesn't mean that what we're reading about ends there. It is continuing on today, which is why we are gathered here this morning because the work that Christ started is continuing. <clears throat> now, there is a transition here in um, verse 3. Actually, I take that back. In verse 2, uh, Luke writes that Jesus began to do and teach these things until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, and then in verse 3, he says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So this is, a very important, uh, this is a very important section here that Christ, after he died, he rose again and he spent 40 days with his disciples, with the apostles before he ascended again. And in that 40 days, Luke lets us know that Christ focused on two things. The first was that he is alive. The resurrection did indeed happen. He's not just an apparition. He's not a ghost. He's not a hallucination, but he is alive. And he did this with many proofs. This can be so easy to glance over and we can say, yes, we know he's alive. Let's move on with that. No, the resurrection is central to everything that goes on. The resurrection is the single most important event of everything. Christ died on the cross, and that is so important. Don't overlook that. But the resurrection is so important because without the resurrection, what we are doing here is pointless and meaningless. So much so that Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, writes this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... took time in the 40 days, the limited time he had left after he rose from the dead to prove to his disciples that he was alive, to show them the evidence and give them the proofs. This is huge for us because the fact that Christ rose from the dead is the reason why we are here. Over and over, as we study through Acts, you're going to see that they keep referencing the resurrection, and they keep mentioning the resurrection, because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important. It is no less shocking today than it was back then that people rise from the dead. This concept that Christ rose from the dead was unbelievable at that time period, just as it is for us today The fact that the apostles went out and said, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that was shocking to people. And Christ prepared them to deliver that message. He showed them proofs and evidence so that they could with confidence and in boldness declare that he is indeed alive. And so we can take comfort in the fact today that Christ is alive. He gave the proofs and evidence to his disciples. And we can read that through the gospels and we can boldly and confidently say today to people as we share the gospel with them that Jesus Christ is alive. The second thing that Jesus decided to to focus in in his 40 days was to teach the apostles about the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God is so important that Luke mentions it over 30 times in his writing in the gospel that Over and over again, Christ, that as Luke talks about the teachings of Christ, Christ is constantly referencing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is near over and over again. And then after he rose from the dead, he continued to teach the apostles about the kingdom of God. Now, as we study through Acts, the kingdom of God is only mentioned seven times. So it may seem like we're transitioning away from that concept but don't lose sight of the kingdom of God because Luke begins his second volume by mentioning the kingdom of God. And then he concludes his second volume by mentioning the kingdom of God. We read in Acts 28, the very last two verses. At this point in Acts, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. So he is a prisoner in Rome in his own home. And Luke writes, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's how Acts ends. So we have at the beginning of this second volume, Christ teaching the apostles for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And then the conclusion of this second volume, Paul, for two years proclaiming to anybody who entered his home, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is central to everything that is going on. So what is this kingdom? What's going on with this kingdom? We read in Luke chapter 17, verse 20, the Pharisees come to Jesus Christ and they begin to ask when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God has no borders. The kingdom of God has no boundaries. You can't pinpoint it on a map. It is not comprised of one nationality, one people, one language, one culture. It crosses every border. It crosses every language. It is full of people who could get into the same room, and could speak and wouldn't understand each other the kingdom of god is not like anything that we have experienced in this world that teaching on the kingdom of god was revolutionary when christ came and it is still revolutionary today the world cup is going on where nations are cheering for their team and then they pick another team to cheer for when their team gets knocked out of the competition I've lost three of the teams that I've been cheering for now, um, so it's, it's a sad day. But uh, Croatia is in it now. They're, they're the underdogs now, so I'm going for them. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how, that, how things shape out for them. But the point is, we all root for our country. We identify ourselves with our nation, where we were born, or we can change nations. We can go move to another country and transfer our citizenship to another country and now we are a part of that country we would learn that language and that culture and become a part of them some people have dual citizenship and so they can move freely between the two countries because they're citizens of both we on the other hand in this room are citizens of the kingdom of god which is something so so very different this kingdom is not established with the sword it's not it doesn't fight wars Back in the day, in the Middle Ages, the European nations, the quote Christian nations, went to war with the Islamic nations to expand the kingdom and recapture Jerusalem. And they took to the sword and they completely missed everything that Christ had taught about. Because our king of this kingdom taught peace, not violence. He taught humility not pride. He humbled himself and became a servant. He said, if you want to be first, you need to be last. He said, lay aside your life, set aside your life, give up your life. If you love your friends, give up your life for them. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The teachings of Christ flipped everything on its head. And then the king of this kingdom quietly, humbly, meekly let people lead him to be executed. He didn't fight back. He could have called down the entire host of heaven. With one word, he could have slain his enemies. He could have wiped him out just by blinking if he wanted to, but he didn't. He gave up his life for us he sacrificed his life to bring a people to the father in the garden of eden we read that satan came and tempted adam and eve and he said look at this fruit god doesn't want you to have it for he knows that if you eat this you will be like god knowing good and evil And then the scripture says that Eve, when she saw that the the food was pleasing to the eye and it was good for food and it was good to make one wise, she took and she ate and she gave to her husband who was with her and he took and he ate. And then at that point, sin into the world and our relationship with God was destroyed. And so ever since that time, we say over and over again, God, we don't need you. We are wise in our own eyes. We don't want your wisdom. We don't want you telling us what is good and what is bad. We want to make that call ourselves. We want to be our own God. We want to rule ourselves. We don't need you. Your throne, get off it. It's ours. And so we have made ourselves enemies of God. And this is the nature that we have inherited from our father, Ab- from our, our father Adam all the way down. And this is why there is strife This is why this world is broken and everything is falling apart. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. The king of kings and lord of lords of this kingdom stepped out of heaven, gave up his power, gave up everything, humbled himself to become a man. And then died on a cross to save a people. But then, don't forget what we've already mentioned. He rose again from the dead. And he ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father, after making purification for sins, which is what we read about when we kicked off the book of Hebrews. That Christ did it. It is finished. It is accomplished. Christ made a way for people to enter into the kingdom of God. And that is what Jesus was teaching his disciples about. That is what he was teaching um, the apostles about. That is what he commissions them out to do, which we will see um, in just a little bit, not today, tomorrow, that Christ sends, not tomorrow, next Sunday, that Christ sends out his apostles to declare the kingdom of God is here We read the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations. Call all people to repent and turn back to Christ. How does one enter into the kingdom of heaven? By believing in Jesus Christ. Believing that he is the son of God. Believing that he died for your sins. By believing that God raised him from the dead and that he is seated at the right hand of God. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner and you need him. And then God says, you're in. I count Jesus' death as yours. You deserve to die, but my son died for you. And if you believe in him and you trust in him and you follow him, then I no longer see your sin. Instead, I say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That is the kingdom of God that we are in. That is the kingdom that we declare. And the reality of the situation is that that kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is here. Yes, there is a future aspect of the kingdom that is coming, but don't overlook the fact that the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is present with us. Our king is alive and is seated on the throne and this is the truth that we are to declare to the world around us that the kingdom of God is here now. This reality is one that we don't often talk about. When we share the gospel, we talk about repenting of sins, which is good and we must do that. We talk about giving your life to Jesus and that is good. We talk about turning from your sins, that Christ died from your sins. But then we skip over And we miss sometimes the fact that the kingdom is here. Don't forget to talk about the kingdom. Don't forget to talk about the resurrection. These two tenets are so central to what is going on. And as we read and study through the book of Acts, we're going to see this kingdom, which started out with a few measly little guys and people that weren't popular, people that had no wealth, that were uneducated, that didn't know their left hand from the right hand, they had Jesus Christ with them, and over and over again, they said foolish things, and they said dumb things, and they, and we can read the Gospels, and we can say, really, Peter? Really? Is that, really? <clears throat> but God used these men and these women to take the gospel and to change the world. And the world changed. The world was turned on its head because the kingdom advanced and the kingdom grew and the kingdom spread. And the kingdom is still growing today. And the kingdom is still spreading today because our Christ is still risen today. We are here because the kingdom of God didn't end at the end of Acts chapter 28. The kingdom of God for 2,000 years has been growing and spreading and more and more people are being added in to this family god is adopting sons and daughters all around the world and this is what we proclaim this is what we preach and this is what christ was preparing his his apostles and his disciples to for 40 days he got them ready to go out and to preach this and the last thing and this is the amazing thing he didn't send them out to do this on their own. If we think of a military, you have a general. The general doesn't fight in the war himself. The general has officers underneath him who then have officers underneath them who then have units that they command and they control. And the general can be an astute tactician. He can, be, he can know the battlefield inside and out but the general is only as good as the men underneath him. As the men and women who fight underneath that general, if they are weak, if they are cowards, if they run away, the general will not win any wars. The general doesn't go out with his men. The general stays back and commands and sends out directions and sends out orders. And then the men get orders and they get orders and then they have to go out and do it on their own. That's not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and then told his disciples this in at the end of 4 and then verse 5 in Acts chapter 1 while staying with them he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the father which he said you heard from me for John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now and here At the very end of his prologue, Luke gives us the Trinity. The Father gives a promise, and the Son teaches and trains, and the Son says, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. He doesn't abandon his people to go and do this in their own strength. He sends them the Holy Spirit, and he tells them to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. You have a great task in front of you. Don't do this on your own. Don't go out in your own strength, in your own wisdom, and wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And the amazing thing is that this same Spirit that the apostles received is the same Spirit that you have today. Christ hasn't abandoned you. When you repent of your sins, and God says, enter into my rest, Christ sends the Holy Spirit to fill you up. You have the same Holy Spirit, and we will see amazing things that the apostles do once the Holy Spirit comes into their lives and fills them up. They do astounding things, and you have the same Holy Spirit in you. This Holy Spirit emboldens these apostles to stand before kings, to stand before emperors, and to declare the truth that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and repent and believe over and over again. They are tortured, they suffer, and they see amazing things because the Holy Spirit is working through them and in them. And you have this same Spirit today. Christ hasn't abandoned you. He has filled you with his spirit to go out and declare the truth that the kingdom of God is here. So you can go out. You can be bold. You can fearlessly declare the truth to the world around you that Christ is risen from the dead and the kingdom of God is here and you need to repent and believe. We can do that knowing that the Holy Spirit is with us and we are not alone. We just sang several songs this morning declaring the reality that we are not alone. Oh, come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. We are weak. We aren't faithful. We sin. That's why we do confession of sin. Every Sunday morning. We don't get it right all the time, but that's okay because we have the Holy Spirit in us, because we are forgiven by God the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Trinity is active in our lives. Luke lays it out for us here at the end of his prologue. And so we can boldly and with confidence step out and share the gospel. We can boldly and and confidently go about our lives declaring this truth knowing knowing that christ has our back the spirit is inside of us because god has promised it and he is faithful and true